My name is Mohammed Aliajuri. I am a resident of the Portland area. I moved to Portland uh, five years ago from Corvallis. I grew up most of my life in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, my wife and I live here in Hillsboro, and we have three boys that are going to school here as well, young boys. We are both, uh, I work for OHSU, Oregon Health and Science University. I manage two of their primary care clinics out in Hillsboro and Beaverton. And my wife works for Nike. And we are happy to be here in the Portland area, of course, with uh, quite a different environment than being in Corvallis, Oregon. Yeah. Oh, so you're really doing the the, the Portland thing with yeah, Nike and the yeah, university. The quintessential Portland experience. <laughs> It's fantastic. Um, and how long you said you've been in Portland? Uh, five years. We moved out here October in 2013. And we both grew up in Corvallis. My wife and I both moved to Corvallis in the early 90s, uh, her with her family and I with mine. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about growing up in Corvallis with your family? Yeah. So my family originally moved from Yemen when I was 10 years old uh, in the early 90s. My uh, dad was getting his PhD at Oregon State University. And I was immediately immersed into the school system and made friends and uh, helped my family navigate through the different systems because I picked up a language fairly quickly. And so I would often be the translator for my mom mm -hmm. at our appointments and helping her with school stuff for my siblings. Uh, and, you know, within the year, I felt pretty uh, integrated with the community and friends in school and all that. And um, started middle school after that and then high school. My family, it was time for my family to move back to Yemen where I came from and uh, my dad finished his PhD so in the middle of my junior year of high school so I decided to stay in finishing out the year with some really close family friends who offered to take me in. Uh, once I finished high school I decided to stay and apply for college and universities and I did that and I got accepted to Oregon State University and ended up going to getting my bachelor's degree and then eventually my master's degree um, and in you know in between all that got married met my wife I met my wife actually before that, but we got married in college Aww. and decided to just keep raise our families here in Oregon. So. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I can't, can't believe yeah. it. Yeah, the Pacific Northwest is beautiful. Oregon is a beautiful state, and I would not, I don't see myself really living in other states yeah. in the foreseeable future, but you know, for now it's home, <laughs> second home. Obviously, my extended family is all in Yemen, mm -hmm. so I uh, definitely feel... Um, uh, my roots in Yemen, but at the same time, being in Oregon for most of my life, it's definitely home. And you mentioned that your father was doing a PhD here. Could you get a little bit more to that? It was a UN program. Yeah, we were here on a UN food program scholarship. Um, he was doing his research in the hazelnut. Oregon was, at okay. the time, pretty prominent in the hazelnut research, uh, which would help the crops in the agricultural um, scene in Yemen. So we came on that visa, obviously, and that scholarship. So... That's fun. And yeah. what year was that? Was in the this 90s. was in 1990. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it was just kind of like a learning, both countries coming together, yeah. learning from each other. Yeah, there was a lot of work at the time as it relates to agriculture. OSU is known for its agricultural mm -hmm. um, degrees and programs and research, and so um, OSU actually uh, brought many Yemeni families from hmm. Yemen under the same program, UN program. So uh, when we came to Corvallis, Oregon, there were about 20 families, okay. students and families. Um, um, after the first Gulf War, those scholarships actually stopped. And so uh, we haven't seen that many Yemeni immigrants c or students come to the state until recently with okay. the war and um, people actually coming here for different reasons. So, Yes. Yeah, unfortunately. But 
Interesting. That's so that's so beautiful to be able to bring different nationalities just for the most human thing, which is nature and yeah. working with the land. And absolutely, it was uh, the the various people that we met when we first moved here were. Uh, Corvallis was a m- very multicultural city. Mm-hmm. It's Oregon State University, obviously. So we met folks from all over the Middle East, Europe, uh, Southeast Asia, and so. It was just a beautiful place to be. OSU brought all these families together. And, you know, some of those people became my closest friends up until now, just for the shared experience of their parents coming here for the same reasons. Um, It's definitely, Oregon has been, has a special place in my heart for all those reasons, obviously, not just because I live here, but also what it was doing for my family, my friends' families, Yemen. And Uh, also what your family did for, you know, for the city, for the state, being able to share your father being able to share his knowledge wouldn't yeah, yeah. helping too. Taking That's it back to yeah. Yemen and um, disseminating some of that good information to help Yemen and its agricultural um, needs. So I guess uh, fast forwarding to now, your father, is he still doing stuff? He's retired. He's in Yemen. Um, and unfortunately, because of the recent conflicts in the war in the la- over the past three to four years, uh, many government employees, officials, uh, researchers have really had um, haven't been very productive. Mm-hmm. He retired early just because he was um, finishing basically his research and didn't want to uh, do anything new. Um, but others are now sort of just stuck in this limbo situation. And we're trying to figure out a way for him to come visit us or come be with us right now. Um, as I mentioned to you, my family since the war has been displaced voluntarily and involuntarily. So I tried to help them leave the situation and uh, to come here, but it's it's difficult and challenging to bring family members here, even though I'm here, I'm a U.S. citizen. My mom is here actually now, finally. But So I have siblings that are still overseas, and, and including our dad, who's um, mm-hmm. in Yemen with my one of my younger siblings. And you mentioned that there's difficulties bringing your family members to be with you in a, in, in a safe country. Sure. What are the well, issues you're in, seeing? In general, it's been difficult to bring family members to the U.S. There's a, a process, obviously. There's mm-hmm. a legal process of you apply for them through the legal channels, and the immigration process is lengthy. Um, it's easier for somebody, you know, gets married and bring, bring their spouse here. Uh, it's easier to bring your mother or father. Mm-hmm. But with siblings who are over the age of 18, it takes many, many years. So uh, before this conflict even started, I had really applied for all of them to come here. And I applied in 2007. And they're still sort of in the in, in line or on the, on the list to, to be processed. So it's not a matter of a couple of months. It's no, years it's and years. years and years and yeah. years. Uh, fortunately for my mother, it was quick. It was a year and so she was able to come here and, and able to come visit me and my family um, once or twice a year. Uh, my siblings, not so much. Um, so, But then with the war uh, and the conflict that uh, ensued in 2015, we were able to try a different path, which is the refugee path. So that wasn't our intention. Our intention to get them out initially was because of the um, heated uh, bombing campaign at the time. Mm-hmm. We didn't know the situation. And so we figured if we have the means to get them out temporarily for a month or two until yeah. things um, calm down, we would do that and then they can come back. Well, two, three months turned into two, three years. And yeah. now we're in our fourth year. So when I first helped them get out of the country, uh, to they ended up in Malaysia, by the way, because Malaysia at the time was taking Yemeni refugees you know, displaced with, from the war. I went there and tried to uh, register them all with the UNHCR office for refugees. So in Malaysia. In Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the U.S. Embassy there to help my youngest brother actually expedite his process that I applied for many years ago. So I was fortunate to have his process expedited, so he was able to come here 
because he was under 18. And the other ones who were over 18, um, we weren't so lucky. So we just have them signed up as uh, temporary refugees in Malaysia. That process is also lengthy. It was lengthy in the past. It is more so now with the current administration, obviously. Um, Most people know the travel bans. That's another layer of complexity because even visiting, which they were able to come and visit in the past, are now no longer able to come visit. Can't come visit in the States because of the travel ban. With a legal visitor visa is no longer um, given to Yemeni residents, unfortunately. So all these compounding factors to make uniting us has been difficult and challenging, to say the least. So. And how, how long has it been since you've seen all of your family? The whole family hasn't really been together since 2007. I've seen uh, my siblings here and there with th- these different visits. So in Malaysia, I saw mm-hmm. the m- most of them that were in Yemen. And the ones that live in the U.S., I see, obviously, pretty often just because they're here. Um, but my second youngest sibling I haven't seen since 2010. We actually rendezvoused in France. I happened to be there for... Uh, my graduate work, and he was there visiting. He's a flight attendant, so he, okay. he just happened to be there. So we met there. That was the last time I saw him. Our dad I haven't seen since 2007. And do you talk to them? Do you have any kinds yeah. of communications? We are in constant communication on a daily basis, I would say, uh, through various means. Mm-hmm. The WhatsApp mm-hmm. is definitely the easiest way to communicate with people. The phone, obviously, the Internet, Facebook, social media. Um, so that's, that's happening. Um, it's just... We're trying to figure out plans for the future. Do we continue at this date for the foreseeable future? Or do we plan for some kind of planning for rendezvous somewhere? I know I'm working with still with the our senators' offices to help expedite the process with some of the foundations here that are helping refugees process their work. Um, we're trying the immigration route as well, of course, with lawyers. So we're trying everything we, we can to, to figure out the opportunities for them to, to come here. Yeah, and this is... You know, one family and just imagine the millions of people. Absolutely. I was. T- I think I was telling you earlier that I, I feel fortunate that we even have these opportunities mm-hmm. to do this. I mean, millions and millions don't have any means of, of hope for leaving the country or even coming to um, a safe area to just be away from the conflict. And those who have been displaced in different countries really are on the same boat as, as my family is, mm-hmm. waiting for the process to work itself. Bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, again, we with the new administration, that created even more challenge just because they reduced the number of refugees mm-hmm. allowed. And adding the travel ban, which focuses on people from those countries, including Yemen, made it even near impossible to come here. And so when you do speak with family members that are still in Yemen, what are their opinions? What are they seeing? What is their day-to-day lives like? Yeah, I mean, it's in the, initially it was just fear and being away from the, the bombings mm-hmm. and also being away from the militias on the ground. So it was just multiple factors that kept them in constant state of fear. They didn't really know where things are headed, who to trust, who not to trust. Um, and then, of course, they left, and I still have extended family in Yemen. So mm-hmm. my immediate family are the ones that mainly left. The cousins, uncles, aunts are all still there. And so the day-to-day is those who can still go to work, go to work and come back. Those who have no work because of the government is basically shut down, mm-hmm. remain at home and just sort of wait it out. Sometimes there is a sense of normalcy from what I hear from them on a day-to-day, but and other times it becomes a heightened state of fear and concern, so they remain at home. Relatives 
who are in other cities like Taiz are facing the most um, difficulties because the Houthis are mainly occupied that area. The capital wasn't so bad only because the, this is where the current Houthi government is and they're trying to maintain balance just because it's in their favor to make sure there's no chaos. So it depends. I mean, it just depends where people are and how they're feeling. I think majority of the issues are around the, outside of the main cities, mm-hmm. with the exception of Taz, where it had a really bad stint with the Houthi militia attacks. Again, politically, no one really wants to take a side in the in Yemen just because it's so sensitive and you never know who will will gain power. And so you sort of just stay in your lane and be neutral and not really get involved just because it's that dangerous over there right now. Uh, Yemenis outside of Yemen are more free to voice their opinion, even though really it's not recommended just because it can impact them back in Yemen. But yeah, it's it's a state of lim- in state of limbo. I mean, the, there isn't really anything much happening diplomatically. The international community is trying. There's some talks here and there, but really nothing materialized to anything meaningful. The airports are still shuttered. Government salaries aren't being dispensed mm-hmm. in a timely manner, and schools are on and off. Worse so for areas away from the main cities, like I said earlier, in the, in the rural areas, it's just devastating. Famine is just rampant and cholera. In the main cities, it hasn't reached that level yet, but it's the lack of resources is starting to be felt, whether it's gas or food or mm-hmm. um, even just being able to send family money is sometimes impacted by the situation. A lot of times people, I think, don't really understand that the infrastructure itself decays. Half of the uh, the hospitals that are still standing are only working at 50% capacity. People basically have no incentive to work. they trying to live somewhat of a normal life, which mm-hmm. is impossible when you have buildings dropping around you, when you have an uh, outbreak mm-hmm. where international health organizations had incentivized the people on the ground to do something to help because the government isn't paying their wages. And so as a professional, what are your opinions about the famine that's happening there, the humanitarian crisis? What what do you think? Yeah, the humanitarian effort has definitely been the most uh, impactful for all of us outside just because we, we don't really have any say in the political discussions. We don't really have any uh, input on how to fix the situation. There's no solution in, in, in sight as far as the... It's a power vacuum. So everyone directs their efforts on the humanitarian effort, whether it's international community or the local organizations or even uh, Yemenis abroad. Mm-hmm. So, and that has been impacted for various reasons, whether it's the shortage of food and humanitarian aid or the blockades at the different ports by various parties with um, ulterior motives, um, whether it's the Houthis or the coalition. It, it, the end goal is still the same. People aren't getting what they need in time and matter. So people are dying of hunger cholera spreading, um, the water supplies are sort of, you know, decreasing Being as well. In. Yeah, and so it, it's it's more impactful to me personally, or more, it resonates more with me personally because it's my background, and I know some of these things we've studied and we've learned about and we've researched on for other countries, so it's much more difficult when it hits close to home, when it hits home, in fact, and so, like I said, in the main cities, it hasn't gotten to that point except for that the hospitals aren't being serviced as much as they should be, obviously, with all the casualties and the sickness. People are dying from lack of medication mm-hmm. or you know, diabetics or people with kidney disease. The people in the rural and more poor areas are dying from the having not having the basic necessities to live. And you've seen all the images on TV mm-hmm. and the news about starving children. But it's it's you know everyone's to blame for that. It's not any one side. It's the entire situation is to be blamed obviously and the international community is trying its best but I also feel like there's not enough pressure being put on all the sides that are involved in this to, to kind of come to a conclusion about either a peace process or a uh, ceasefire or a humanitarian delivery sort of method for us to get things through that the fear of it being um, looted or taken or not even reaching its destination. So it's it's 
it's really that challenging. And, and for Yemenis like myself who are abroad or here, or not abroad, but uh, out of Yemen, we're trying our best to find ways to help people, whether it's working with NGOs on the ground or um, working with any nonprofit here who's trying to help. And, um, you know, we had, I mentioned to you earlier that we had a shipment of 300 metric tons of wheat going from Oregon to Yemen. This is in September. And that was really, um, th- that was... It was such a heartwarming experience to be part of that, to witness that, and it's it's and it that much wheat only reached so many people. It was only enough for three months for about seven million people. So, can't imagine how much effort is needed to get everyone what they need. This country of 29, 20, 28 million people uh, who are in need of all these supplies. Yeah, it resonates more so for me because it is my professional background and what I've studied for the past ten years and. And you know, speaking with the experts and just watching the news and reading on what's happening on the ground, it's it's heartbreaking to see that that situation got to the way it is in a country that didn't deserve any more than what it already had. It was already a developing third world country in many in many areas, so that just added to the pain. And um, could you tell us a little bit about how you remember your homeland? Yeah, I mean, I I do remember quite a bit. I mean, I was ten when I came, and I visited several times since and. Yemen is a beautiful country, and many will, people will tell you who have been there. It's a very, very beautiful country. It's historically, it's it's been there for thousands of years. It's got the uh, you know the various seasons are visible there. It's not a desert only. It's it's it, although it is in the Middle East in a desert area. It has tropical areas. It's got rainy seasons, and it's very green. And we all know that the coffee is obviously. <laughs> Prominent there, so I, I remember all these things. I remember visiting family and extended family, driving down to the villages, driving to the Red Sea, and being with family. Uh, the day-to-day life was wonderful. People are hospitable and friendly, and like any major city, but it's got a, a tint of. It's sort of like it's got areas where it feels like it's still in the 19th century, mm. just because it's they preserve the culture and the, the old city of Sanaa, for example. You have many, many buildings who have been there for thousands of years, mud bricks. And they've lasted. And so it's unfortunate to see some of that being destroyed by the current situation, whether it's bombing or people on the ground, the militias not really caring for some of the yeah. artifacts and some of the buildings and some of the history there. That's part of the history and yeah. being demolished. Absolutely, before. because of people who are just not really seeing, yeah. you know, people like me have dreams of taking their families back and showing them. Um, but, you know, there are, Yemeni people are resilient. Yemen is resilient. I'm sure that it was not all going to be destroyed, but it's just sad to see some of these things that I remember growing up seeing as iconic images or areas or buildings are in ruins right now. Even people who I would never have imagined would leave Yemen for any reason are now leaving. Mm-hmm. And so that is a sign that it really isn't the same anymore. Some of the brain drain that we're seeing now, some of the smartest people in the country are leaving. Like they want to be able to pursue a better life, and who knows what that will mean for the future. You know, at what point do we do people go back and help rebuild? No one knows. Yeah, just really reshaping the future because yeah. of so much turmoil for the people living there. You know, a lot of people say it's a proxy war, and it's not even the Yemeni people yep. that are fighting the war. Yeah. What's your opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as we can see this, it's so documented very clearly. It's the people who are suffering the most are the people of Yemen. 
whether it's the Houthis or the coalition or some of the internal conflicts, some of those figureheads are still there. Nothing has changed in the past three plus years. So, you know, you have influences from Iran for the Houthis. You have Saudi and the Emirates with their influence. And then you have the the civil war in the between the South and the mm-hmm. North. So there's multiple factors at play and not any one uh, direction that it's going. It's difficult. I mean, I know that politically speaking, people really can't pinpoint who's at fault. When it comes to the U.S. side, the U.S., as a government, as an administration, back in Saudi Arabia and its efforts. So obviously, it's slanted towards that biased mm-hmm. opinion. People on the ground who are align themselves with the Houthi militia or the Houthi uh, movement are obviously seeing it from a different lens mm-hmm. and seeing the coalition as the oppressors bombing the people, the innocent people. So it's difficult to pinpoint. I mean, it's 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 different to who who you ask and what lens they're looking through this at. Yeah, Yemenis in, in the U.S. are divided. Some are against any Saudi intervention or the coalition or bombing campaign, obviously, because you're seeing the destruction and the death. And then some who have been impacted by the Houthis and see what's happening on the ground will tell you that we welcome that because it's this militia is being financed by Iran and they are uh, going to destroy our country and they have no place to be here. And of course, all this started with the Arab Spring, the youth revolution, as they call it, when people just came in and wanted to participate with the process of building a new government. And unfortunately, it hasn't been positive since. So, so since the Arab Spring, do you think that the true voice and the will of the people has come to fruition or uh, they stand there now? Not yet. I mean, I think it's still, you know, we saw it in Tunisia and in Libya and mm-hmm. in Syria, all these efforts were squashed by higher powers with brutal force sometimes. So we haven't even seen a successful end to the Arab Spring. Tunisia comes the closest, but they're still having more protests and another person set himself on fire the other day, which what, started the initial Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. So I don't think anybody in the region has had their voice heard in a positive way. I think it's just more of growing pain still. I mean, it's the Arab region was in that state for many, many years, so it's hard to say that it would be changed overnight, but it, it showed that people do have the power to speak and hopefully we can have peaceful protests to get change, meaningful change. And hopefully the current conflict in Yemen is addressed by the international community and we have a, a peace process that can lead to a legitimate government in Yemen that represents all the people of Yemen. Right now it's hard to see because you have different factions wanting different things. The legitimate government recognized by the international community is ruling Yemen from a different country. Yeah, it's not even... Yeah, and so how do you explain to a <laughs> uneducated Yemeni person who is seeing this and doesn't really understand why it's happening? Uh, of course, the people outside of Yemen who are watching the news from that lens um, are trying to make up their mind about what is happening exactly. You know, do you focus on the humanitarian effort? Do you focus on the political issues? Or do you deal with your immediate family and friends and get them to a safe area? Not to mention all the ones who were stranded here to begin with who mm-hmm. can't go anywhere. They're, they were here as students or temporary workers, and there's no way for them to go. So trying to find services for them here and trying to find relief for them here, you know, whether it's extending their visas or giving them opportunities to work and to support themselves, that's also another issue that's Which is also very time-consuming and expensive. And you mentioned that there is some local or U.S. organizations that are helpful. Would you want to share some with us? Maybe some of the listeners can go check them out and donate to the cause. Yeah, there's obviously the the usual suspects like the... Red Cross, Red Crescent, um, and all those organizations. Uh, there is a U.S.-based nonprofit that's helping Yemen more directly. Uh, I, I learned of Pure Hands is one of them. Mm-hmm. That's been 
collecting, um, whether it's on the clinical medical side, helping with gathering local doctors and kind of coming up with those efforts or uh, monetary support and aid. There's, of course, international organizations, the UN, the WHO. There's a lot of effort now to give help toward Yemen. Um, so just finding the basically which or, whichever one you have access to. There are there are organizations here like uh, Mercy Corps who are trying because they've been they've been based in Yemen for a mm-hmm. while and they have presence in Yemen. Sorry, and, and they've been helping uh, where they where they can. Uh, we have obviously some local Yemenis who are gathering resources together and then working with an NGO or a nonprofit to send some of those resources to Yemen. It's not clear yet. There's not a direct effort or a, a unified effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just more sporadic. And especially since, unfortunately, Yemen was a forgotten war for the first two and a half, three years. It wasn't until recent that people are actually noticing. And it's been in the media, as you know, for different reasons. So it's it's finally getting some good prominence that will hopefully shed the light on what's happening there. Humanitarian efforts, of course, as well as the political process. So Yeah, that's very, it, it's very difficult because the political aspect of it is so much that being able to just help someone mm-hmm. who's starving or being able to donate some sort of monetary or, or canned goods or something, anything, wheat, anything, mm-hmm. that is a lot more important to give another human the sustenance to be able to fight. And uh, if listeners out there want to donate, then please do so. Uh, there are different organizations, international and U.S.-based. And is there any kind of ending note that you'd like to mention, any kind of final say, any wishes for the future? Yeah, I know we're starting the new year. I, I hope people can be mindful of what's happening around them, appreciate what they have here, appreciate their family. Uh, Yemen is an issue that may not be solved immediately or in the next few months or a few years, but it's nice that it is being talked about more and more so now in the media, in the main mainstream media, local media. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it from my perspective, at least. I don't speak for all the Yemenis here or in Yemen. I speak for me, my family, and my close circle of um, acquaintances and friends, but it's not that hard to see the situation is deteriorating and we need to step in as an international community of the U.S. and just anyone who has a compassion or empathy for a fellow human being who is under stress, not just in Yemen. I mean, it's all over. It's Syria. It's in parts of the Middle East and Africa. And, and so I think this is just more of, I mean, the, the southern border of the United States having yeah. its own issues too with the migrants being uh, treated the way they are. So I think it's just the world needs to take a breath and figure out what our priorities are and reconvene as humans and figure out solutions to these issues. I think it's just unfortunate that it's always a new thing after another. We're never in a state of complete peace, and mm. I look forward to having even something remotely close to that. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and you are a local Portlander, and you are our neighbor, you are the community. Thank you. And so it's not that it's this, this war that's happening far away. This is affecting members of our community directly. So Absolutely. it's just, it, I'm so glad that you were able to come here so that we can give a local voice to what's happening that, you know, seems so far away, but it is impacting someone, and we are so honored and happy happy to have you here. I appreciate that. It's my honor to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to share. Um, and I hope that you you have other opportunity to have others come here and speak on on other issues too as well. So thank you for that for Definitely. your work. Thank you very very much, Mohammed. Um, thank you. Tammy. And that's going to wrap it up for us. Thank you all very much for listening.